Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Intravenous fluids are the most common drugs administered in the intensive care unit. They are routinely given for resuscitation of shock, maintenance of daily fluid requirements, and as carriers for drug administration. Given the concern for iatrogenic fluid overload, recent studies have focused on new approaches to limit fluid accumulation, known as fluid stewardship, where fluid therapy is customized to patient-specific needs through restrictive use and targeted de-resuscitation. Here today on Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds is Dr. Andy Jadis to review the current evidence related to ICU fluid stewardship and de-resuscitation strategies. And so just to start us off here, I want everyone to think about the most common medications that we're used to seeing. And although maybe fluids might not come to mind initially, with over a billion units annually, 0.9% sodium chloride is the most common medication that we utilize in practice in addition to our ICU patients. Despite their widespread use, fluids are still up in the air on how we can best manage them. So we still have a long way to go and understand this. Fluid stewardship is a novel practice to help us better understand how to utilize these therapies in practice. For learning objectives for today's presentation, I hope you'll gain your appreciation that fluids are medications and they do have adverse consequences when patients receive too much of that and have overload. Additionally, we'll be summarizing the literature to help us assess the efficacy of these fluid stewardship strategies. And then lastly, we'll be generating a patient-specific fluid therapy plan. When we think about fluids, there's three main indications that may come to mind. This includes things such as resuscitation in our initial phases to improve hemodynamics and perfusion for patients, maintenance and, nutrition, maintenance and nutritional related needs, which would largely be uh, when patients don't have oral access and as a common practice that might not always be appropriate and indicated for a lot of patients. And then lastly, replacement, which would be thinking of patients that have large losses, such as from a drain, that we're just trying to replace that from there. I think a very uh, common source of fluid in our, in our patients that's not actually a true indication would be the fluids related to medication therapies or hidden fluids. This would also include things such as blood products and flushes and can account for up to 40% of the fluids that patients are receiving in the intensive care unit. Additionally, antibiotics could be one of the main drivers of this source of fluids in our patients. So then looking a little bit more further at the roles of, of fluid therapy in different stages, the ROSE model provides an excellent summary of how we can utilize uh, fluids from a looking at the different stages here in a patient's time course. So first, starting here with the R, the resuscitation phase, it's important for us to provide early adequate fluid management. Thinking like antibiotics as well, it's important for us to start our antibiotics early on in someone's septic shock course potentially to intervene. Similar here, we want to fill the tank initially to help improve our hemodynamics for patients. As we progress into past that initial hours of someone's presentation, we move into the optimization phase where we look to seek a neutral fluid balance. This would largely be when uh, patients are beginning to be stabilized, and we may or may not be needing to continue maintenance fluids if they don't have oral access. And as we progress then into after the initial, uh, past the initial 24 hours into the coming days, we move into the stabilization phase. 
or late conservative fluid management becomes key. And in, in this phase, patients, again, are stabilized. We're maybe able to get off vasopressor support or other modalities as their antibiotics have helped uh, resuscitate and improve our initial uh, patient's presentation. And then lastly, this leaves us with the evacuation phase, which is where we aim for active late goal-directed fluid removal and therapy. Thinking of a patient with sepsis, they present with different stages of, of, of their presentation. First, starting with the ebb phase. In this, during the uh, overlap with resuscitation optimization, patients are likely intravascularly depleted as they have a component of distributive shock. Commonly then, after we uh, provide resuscitation, patients may move into the flow phase in which they increase their perfusion, they begin to autodiurese, and we can see here then they start to also evacuate their fluids on their own. Not all patients are gonna move into the flow phase represented here by the red line. And these truly would be our patients that we have to be most concerned about of thinking of who would be most at risk for uh, fluid accumulation and fluid overload. So then thinking of fluid overload, we have our patient here. We could see from head to toe, every organ system is impacted by accumulative fluid balance and, and having a positive uh, fluid overload in, the, in this situation. So of course, it's important to be mindful that this presentation can often be insidious till we are seeing this edema in multiple organ systems. But what about clinical outcomes? From various multi, or sorry, from various retrospective studies, we've seen these different indicator outcomes related to fluid overload. So specifically, prolonged time on ventilation, increased renal replacement therapy needs, longer ICU and hospital length of stay, and even increased mortality. It's important to note from these retrospective studies that this largely might be a predictor of mortality more so than actual true correlation. This would have to be further investigated in a randomized controlled trial to further assess this actual causation related to this. That brings me to my first assessment question for today. Feel free to log in here to pollev.com slash mailrx or to text mailrx to 22333 with your answers. What adverse consequences have been associated with fluid overload and positive fluid balance in critically ill patients? So we could see some of the answers starting to come here. Of course, edema would be a physical sign of this. I think that uh, that's a common thing that uh, whether or not in practice, we always associate that with harm. I think it's important for us to recognize when it's not just a cosmetic issue. So that edema that could be noted in any of the organ systems can definitely cause harm. And I also have seen a few answers just related to increased need for renal replacement therapy or mechanical ventilation. So I'd agree with all those answers thus far. So now we've recognized that fluid balance and fluid overload can be harmful for our patients. What's a, an effective strategy based off the evidence that we can utilize? Looking here at the 4D approach, which includes drug, dose, duration, and de-escalation, we'll next be discussing a little bit more of the evidence here in relation to this. So first, starting with our drug or which fluid to utilize, thinking of fluids as a medication, they do have pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic properties that we do need to keep in mind. So thinking of our intravascular space here and how our fluid therapy can help with expansion, which would be our main goal during the resuscitation phase of someone that has shock. Looking at here at a common type of fluid, crystalloids, when we give 1,000 milliliters of this, 250 milliliters of that would be retained and expand in the intravascular space. Comparing this to another very common type of fluids, colloids, when we give a, a thousand milliliters of this, we could see 100% or a thousand milliliter retention in our intravascular space. It's important to note though, for our patients with sepsis or other uh, dysfunction, we could see here that the, with the pathophysiology, there's injury to the glycocholics layer that lines or endothelial of our blood vessels. 
and we can see a change in our fluid kinetics. This can lead to an increase in interstitial edema that can contribute to our, our fluid, positive fluid balance. But importantly, it does change how our medications act. So an active change in our kinetics here is we could see an increase in the expansion of crystalloids and actually a decrease in our colloids. And this thought process is largely why in our randomized controlled trials, including the SAFE and the Albios trial, there's been no difference in mortality when comparing these two types of fluids. So with that in mind, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign recommends usage of balanced crystalloids as a first-line resuscitation therapy. Then moving into dose, or how much of a medication to give for this patient. And looking here, it's easiest to conceptualize our physiology with our Frank-Starling curve. So we can see on our x-axis, we have our preload and our y-axis stroke volume. Starting at point A, most of us will live here on the lower end of our Frank-Starling curve. And as we increase preload, which would be a surrogate of just giving a patient more volume, we could see our stroke volume increasing here from point A to B. So this would represent someone that's responsive to fluid therapy. As we continue to progress and give additional preload, we could see that the, the uh, max gain or the, the amount of difference here, we don't achieve as, as much of a desired effect in that increase in stroke volume. It's also important to note that for patients with a lower initial reserve, so thinking of someone with heart failure, they also might have less the gain as we give additional fluid therapy or increase our preload. So I like to think of this as we're walking a tightrope as patients on their volume status. There's risk of complications when we're on either end of the spectrum when thinking of hypovolemia and hypervolemia. So of course, here we have some of those issues that could be related to both ends of that. So how do we actually assess a patient and know how much to give them? This is where a fluid responsiveness test can come into play. Historically, the definition of this has been uh, giving fluid and then seeing an increase in the stroke volume of greater than 10%. The main purpose of this is we want to identify those patients where they're at on the frank starring curve to see if they'd have hemodynamic benefit after giving fluid therapy to select the appropriate patient. Interestingly, after the initial three hours of resuscitation, only 50% of patients with uh, sepsis are actually responsive to, to fluids. So really just a, a flip of the coin as far as this. So it's important for us not to give additional fluid therapy if someone's not going to be responsive. The main challenge with this is there's a lot of different ways to test this. It's not actually standardized. And just because a patient's fluid responsive does not mean they'll benefit. So when thinking of these markers, there's static and dynamic tests. Our static marker here would be represented by our, uh, our central venous catheter that's sitting in our superior vena cava uh, with our CVP. And this provides a one, a point at one point in time where we're assessing our cardiac pressures here and just a surrogate. There's been poor correlation with this as far as the sensitivity and specificity for actual response to fluid. So it's not recommended as a marker by itself. Dynamic testing uh, is something definitely worth discussing. And we'll be going through a passive leg raise here with our, our patient that we can see at the bedside. And what this will require is continuous uh, monitoring of cardiac output. And we look at, we are gonna flip our patient here into a semi-recumbent position. And essentially what this does is it provides 250 to 500 milliliters of a fluid bolus from the legs. And with our continuous cardio, uh, cardiac output monitoring, when we flip our patient up, we could see that change. So more of a, assessing in real time, the dynamics and the interactions of fluid in the heart. And what this has been shown to do in, in patients with sepsis is decrease the amount of fluids we're actually giving patients, decrease the need for renal replacement therapy and decrease the need for mechanical ventilation. So with that, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign uh, recommends we, of course, be aggressive upfront with providing enough resuscitation fluid, but then guiding additional therapy with dynamic fluid response testing. So then moving into duration, 
or how long to provide fluid therapy. And looking at a study by Murthy and colleagues, this was a retrospective analysis with patients with septic shock and acute lung injury. And they studied two different uh, fluid management strategies, adequate initial fluid resuscitation and conservative late management. And what they found is that achieving both of these resulted in the greatest decrease in mortality. So we need to be aggressive upfront, but then be mindful of our fluids later on and be more conservative. An initial trial to mention, the RADAR trial, this was a retrospective analysis of patients on mechanical ventilation for at least 24 hours. And in here, we saw that a positive fluid balance at 72 hours was an independent predictor of mortality. And one of the largest contributors to this was patients' medications and maintenance fluids. So key things for us to be thinking about intervening on for patients uh, would be the, these types of uh, fluid intakes. So in summary for duration, resuscitation likely does not continue beyond that initial 24-hour window, so really in between that 24- to 72-hour window. And then positive fluid balance may be harmful from that one retrospective study reviewed. Then looking here at de-escalation, this is really a combination of a lot of different interventions, including one to stop, give less fluid, or actively remove fluid. Starting here with the study by Soccer and colleagues, this was a retrospective analysis of patients with sepsis. And what they showed here was a positive fluid balance at 24 hours was not associated with mortality, but as we do progress into the later phases, at 72 hours, similar to other trials discussed, we do see that increase in mortality. Interestingly, they compared survivors to non-survivors. And what they saw was that there was a similar cumulative fluid balance amongst people, but where differences did occur was there was a decrease in fluid balance. So how much uh, actual combinations of I's and O's, and that was mainly driven by an increase in urine output. So this might give us some clues into where we need to be thinking about where to intervene on as maybe this increase in urine output could be the, the real target of interest. Then a study by Shen and colleagues, uh, this was a retrospective analysis of patients on vasopressors plus diuretics. I think in practice, it could be quite confusing why someone might be on a vasopressor, but then also be actively diuresing. And of interest from this study, they showed with diuretic use, there's actually a decrease in mortality in these patients. But who actually benefited from this? It was the subgroup with a positive fluid balance. So patients that did not have a positive fluid balance did not see this benefit and impact in mortality. And interestingly, just thinking about hemodynamics, if we're diuresing someone, how much is this going to change their mean arterial pressure? It was a decrease of three with the diuretic use in comparison. So looking back here at our ROSE model and thinking of our patient with the red line here that doesn't progress into the flow phase, we can see that there's a potential window of when we need to be considering de-resuscitation after that initial day into the coming days of therapy. And the modalities we could do uh, utilize for this active removal would be things such as diuretic therapy and ultra filtration with renal replacement therapy. So in summary, when looking at de-escalation, it's unclear which strategy and timeline for targeting active fluid removal would be most beneficial. So that really brings us into then our second portion of discussing the literature and actually reviewing how do we manage fluid overload. And there's two different approaches here for prevention or with utilizing restrictive fluids in comparison to treatment versus de-resuscitation. I'd note that this could be quite confusing and some of these studies do a combination of both of these. So thinking of restrictive fluids, that's us trying to control how much we're actually giving a patient as far as intakes, whereas a de-resuscitative approach would be a protocol utilizing active fluid removal with either diuretics or renal replacement therapy. So then looking into our first trial here, the FOC trial, this was a uh, comparison of conservative versus liberal fluid usage. It was a randomized controlled trial of patients with acute lung injury. For looking at their baseline characteristics, the etiology was mainly driven by pneumonia, but then uh, roughly about a quarter of the patients did have sepsis. The median P to F ratio was 150, with 
which when thinking of our uh, current definition with the Berlin criteria for acute respiratory distress syndrome, this would classify as moderate severity of ARDS. When thinking of the timeline of, in the interventions in this trial, the mean time to first intervention was 42 hours. So after that initial resuscitation period, so this is more of the a post-resuscitation uh, usage of fluids here. And patients were randomized to either the conservative versus liberal. And what this uh, actually meant is that patients would get a combination of either fluid therapy or furosemide, depending on their randomization. When looking at their primary outcome of interest, their mortality was not different in comparison of these two different arms. And looking at cumulative fluid balance at day seven, there was a significant difference here. And we can see a decrease of roughly about seven liter difference here between the two different arms in which the conservative actually achieved a negative fluid balance. And then looking here at other clinical outcomes of interest, the number of ventilator-free days was reduced in the patients receiving conservative fluids. Additionally, the, uh, there was an increase in IC, IC, ICU and hospital-free days. So an improvement in the conservative arm uh, in comparison to that. The protocol for this is quite confusing as it utilized a combination of intravascular pressure monitoring to then randomize patients in a two-to-two uh, sequential format to one of these different 20 interventions. As you can see here, this is quite confusing and knowing how to extrapolate this into practice. And that's kind of the point of this graphic. So for us, when thinking of the external validity, it can be somewhat uh, tricky to actually interpret the study and how we can utilize it to improve these uh, outcomes in these patients. So to build upon that, investigators looked at a fact light protocol, which used a much simplified approach here with just central venous pressures to randomize patients then based off your output into either receiving furosemide or getting additional fluid. And of interest, when looking at this in comparison to that original protocol, so our patients in the conservative and liberal arms here are the same ones we just discussed. The light protocol did have uh, an increase in fluid balance in comparison to the conservative arm, but still less than the liberal arm. And how this actually correlate with outcomes, the light protocol retained the benefit of uh, ventilator and IC free days, uh, in comparison to the conservative strategy over liberal. So in, in a sense, the more simplistic approach was still successful in this, in this study. I'd note that central venous pressures, we noted static, static uh, markers of fluid responsiveness is not our best indication. So still somewhat in information that's helpful, but not something that we still utilize in practice commonly. So let's look at some of our other pilot studies then to build off this. So this, well, both these studies were comparing restrictive fluid versus standard of care. Start, starting first with our classic trial, this was a randomized controlled trial of patients with septic shock after they received 30 mils per kilogram of fluid resuscitation. And then they were subsequently assigned to a restrictive versus a standard of air, uh, care arm where uh, patients received fluids if they were fluid responsive based off uh, criterion from the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines. The protocol of interest for restriction uh, would provide a fluid bolus of 250 to 500 mils of balanced crystalloid if patients had one of the four hypoperfusion criterion. So looking here, they define us as a lactate greater than four, a MAP less than 50, skin molting, which would be a skin, skin discoloration larger than the size of the kneecap for a score greater than two, or urine output uh, less than 0.1 mil per kg per hour, but that criterion was only used for the first two hours. So looking at their outcomes, of interest, their primary, this being difference in fluids given. Uh, the restrictive heart arm had 1.2 liters less of resuscitation fluid given. This led to, in their exploratory outcomes of interest, a decrease in the worsening of AKI in comparison to these two arms, favoring the restriction arm. Of note, protocol violations were 
were quite common in this study and represented about 50% of the restriction group. This was largely a combination of usage of albumin, which was uh, a protocol violation in both arms, representing about half of these uh, violations. And then the other half was usage of fluids when they weren't uh, specifically meeting this classic criterion. So one of the limitations when thinking of these studies is they could be somewhat difficult to actually follow the rigor of the, the specifics for each arm. Then building off this, a more recent trial in 2019, the RIFS study, this was a randomized controlled trial of patients with severe sepsis or shock after resuscitation. And then they were assigned to either restriction or usual care. Their restrictive protocol was pretty simple. They simply just limited the amount of resuscitation fluids they could be given in the first 72 hours to be below 60 mils per kilogram. And then there was no protocol specifically for when to administer fluid in either arm. When looking at the outcomes of interest here, the restrictive group was successful in decreasing the amount of fluid given. And that was statistically significant. This difference of 14 mils per kilogram equated to 823 mils of fluid. For their uh, outcomes of interest, there is no difference in mortality when comparing these. And additionally, there was 22 hours less of mechanical ventilation in the restriction group as another exploratory outcome of interest. Protocol violations were significantly less looking here at only 5% in the restriction group, largely just because of the simplicity of the protocol that they utilized. So from these uh, pilot studies, definitely some indications that maybe restrictive fluids would be beneficial for our patients, but warrants a, a larger study. So that brings us to the more recent classic trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in the past month. And in this, we could see our end here, of course, a lot larger as a randomized controlled trial of patients with septic shock. They had to receive at least one liter of fluid and have ongoing vasopressor requirements. The protocol was the same that I just reviewed from the feasibility trial. Uh, so I won't spend any other time uh, reviewing it again, but it's here for your reference. And looking here at their baseline characteristics, patients were adequately resuscitated to begin with, each arm receiving at least 3,000 milliliters of fluid prior to randomization. And the median high dose of norepinephrine was 0.24 mics per kg per minute, and 50% of them required respiratory support at baseline, signaling that these patients uh, had a, a level of severity of illness that was probably likely in the moderate to severe range. Looking here at their outcomes of interest, mortality at day 90, there was no difference in the two outcomes. And looking here then at secondary outcomes for serious adverse effects, this included things such as cerebral, myocardial, intestinal ischemia, or AKI, no difference as well in comparison. But then moving into our subgroups of interest, there was a trend towards decreased mortality for those that required respiratory support or received a high amount of fluids at the initial presentation. And the other thing to note here is the reverse was actually seen in patients that didn't require respiratory support where there was a slight trend towards improvement with standards of fluid. So I think these are subgroups of interest that's based off the fact trial, especially patients on mechanical ventilation. Uh, less fluids might be beneficial in these cases. How successful was this trial at actually restricting the intakes? Just some graphs here we'll be going through in, in greater detail. And looking at fluid intake from day one to day five as represented on the x-axis here and our y-axis with the actual fluids in milliliters. Uh, we could see as time progressed from day one to day five, the study was successful in further separating the amount of fluids being given in the comparison of these two arms. There's that difference of 1,600 milliliters between the two groups. When actually looking at fluid balance, a uh, less impressive in, to this degree that the, the difference over time really did not change. So really this study was effective in decreasing that IV fluid intake. 
But as far as that fluid balance, which we know when we're thinking of overload being maybe more of interest, this, this study didn't really change that, that difference of fluids uh, in comparison to fluid intake. So really it leaves us for information to want to search more for how do we actually then impact cumulative fluid balance. But in summary, for a preventative strategy, I think looking at patients that had the most the benefit, this would definitely be our ARDS patients in the post-resuscitation phase. It's likely safe in sepsis based off the results from the classic trial, where we saw no difference in clinical outcomes. And this kind of leads to the point that it's unclear if this actually improves outcomes uh, for now. That really brings us then to the two-prong approach, then how do we actually tackle fluid balance as a whole uh, with de-resuscitative approaches? So starting then with a study by Bissell and colleagues, this was a protocol versus a historical care trial. as a pre-post single center study where patients uh, were included if they were critically ill, requiring mechanical ventilation, plus had signs of volume overload, or just simply had a, a cumulative fluid balance. Their protocol was definitely interesting. It was designed by a pharmacist and pharmacist initiated. And essentially what they did was titrate their diuretic therapy to meet the daily fluid balance goals. And included monitoring for adverse effects as well. For their baseline characteristics, I would note that they matched patients in a one to three manner. So patients prospectively included in this were matched with historical controls, just based off different markers of severity of illness. Vasopressor use was quite common, uh, roughly about 50% of these patients prior to diuretics. And ARDS represented a small quarter of this, so a patient population we know would likely benefit. So looking at a larger, more inclusive patient population here. To be included for the protocol, patients did need to be off vasopressors for the last 12 hours. Looking at cumulative fluid balance or primary outcome of interest, that's 72 hours. Uh, a large significant difference here and greater than two and a half liters between these two different arms. So looking at clinical outcomes, of course, noting this was a retrospective study, so hypothesis generating, uh, but we could see a reduction in mortality for patients that had the protocol for diuresis. 5.5% uh, versus 16.1% in the historical control arm. This led to additional improvements and increased ICU-free days by the second day. As far as potential downsides of a diuretic protocol, metabolic derangements and side effects related to diuretics are important to keep in mind. And this occurred at an increased rate for things such as hypokalemia and hypernatremia with those that received that protocol. So definitely hypothesis generating some exciting findings uh, that warrant additional randomized controlled trials. That brings us to our pilot trials uh, to see if this, this approach could potentially be utilized in a randomized controlled trial. So starting first with the reverse AKI study, this was a, uh, a randomized controlled trial that included patients that were critically ill with the AKI. And for this, patients received, for their protocol for de-resuscitation, it was really a combination of a restrictive bundle that limited fluid only to medications or oral nutrition. And then uh, for their de-resuscitation approach, the unrestricted diuretics specifically to target a negative fluid balance. So it was up to the providers to utilize the diuretics however they wanted. And usual care uh, just followed no, no specific pattern. For looking at their outcomes of interest, the restrictive and de-resuscitative approach did decrease that fluid balance at 72 hours. We can see here by more than a liter. And then uh, exploratory outcomes of interest the de-resuscitative and restrictive arm had uh, less patients that required renal replacement therapy. So initial positive benefits that we could see in patients with uh, acute kidney injury. Protocol violations in this case were most commonly due to patients in the restrictive arm uh, receiving maintenance fluids that weren't indicated. For the RADAR2 trial to build off this, looking then specifically at critically ill patients that were mechanically ventilated, 
This was a randomized controlled trial just comparing the restrictive plus deresuscitative arm to a standard of care. And at baseline, I just want to note some differences in these populations. The deresuscitative arm did have increased ARDS, renal replacement therapy, and vasopressors at baseline. When thinking of our protocol of interest here for the deresuscitative approach, this combined uh, a titratable furosemide order that was a drip uh, plus multimodal diuretics. So these patients did receive a mineral corticoid uh, receptor antagonist and a thiazide diuretic to start. And these were just titrated to achieve their gold net six hour fluid balance. Looking at their outcomes of interest, the deresuscitative uh, arm here at fluid balance at 72 hours was reduced by roughly about a liter. I'm looking at uh, subgroups of interest here as well. The mortality was actually increased in the deresuscitative arm. And the authors have a, a big, uh, large section in their discussion kind of how to interpret this. And they really say to take it with a grain of salt. We could see here the sample size of our population with 40 patients and 32, really representing only about a third of this total study. So a very small uh, section of this that was not necessarily powered for these outcomes. And again, noting that differences in severity of illness at baseline, the pa patients that received the deresuscitative approach were much sicker and they weren't able to correct for this, just given the small sample size in their analysis. But definitely gives us a little bit of a pause and maybe warrants additional studies from this uh, for other randomized controlled trials that are actually powered to look at clinical outcomes. Additionally, another downside to their diuretic protocol was the increase in metabolic adverse effects that we saw uh, in those patients. Protocol violations were common at 32%. Most commonly, just when uh, fluids weren't indicated, they were given. And then patients, uh, sometimes the providers wouldn't follow the diuretic protocol and the other portion of these patients. So in summary, we're looking at treatment. There was a benefit potentially in our patients with AKI and mechanical ventilation. I think from the RADAR2 study, it may lar require larger studies in sepsis, although I think uh, we can continue to uh, move, move forward with this, of course, cautiously. And then uh, looking at metabolic adverse effects, it's something to be mindful of that is predictable and likely going to occur with diuretic therapy. So we need to be monitoring and titrating these orders appropriately. So that brings me to my second assessment question for today. When interpreting the results of the classic trial, which is true regarding restrictive fluids compared to standard of care? Is it A, increased risk of AKI without signal for benefit? B, increased mortality? C, decreased fluid intake without signal for harm? And D, decreased mortality? So as the answers come in here, I'll go through our answer choice here. I would agree with the audience that choice C here is the correct answer. Uh, based on this study, when looking at mortality, there was no difference. So both B and D would be incorrect. And there was no change in, in the also additional clinical outcomes related to AKI. So uh, decreased fluid intake uh, was achieved successfully, although there wasn't really a signal from harm from this trial. So this would suggest that our therapies, of course, we have some initial positive findings, although uh, at the same time, we still have as many unknowns, I think, that left to be answered with additional trials. So how do we actually create a plan for a patient? when assessing this, this based off the literature reviewed. Starting first with patient selection, timing is definitely key. We wanna intervene early enough to catch this, but then not too late where the problem can lead to downside effects. Uh, so timing 18 to 24 hours after ICU admission would maybe be the ideal period. And then our goal would be neutral to negative fluid balance within that 72 hour timeline. When thinking of patient selection as well, we wanna make sure that these patients actually have cumulative fluid balance that's positive or have signs of fluid overload. So this could be assessed with I's and O's, evidence of edema on radiographic or physical exam, 
And then if we are doing fluid responsive testing and they're not responsive, that'd be a signal that our fluids are actually causing harm for this patient. Also important for us when we're walking our tightrope, we want to maintain balance between this. So we want to check for contraindications. If patients are on multiple vasopressors or higher doses in norepinephrine, then we want to correct our metabolic derangements such as potassium before starting therapy. And we can all do, a, I think, a better job in the ICU of setting more clear fluid balance goals and following them. So a typical starting place would be setting a negative balance uh, of uh, one to two liters per day. Then moving into selecting the interventions, starting with a fluid restriction bundle. I think this is an area that pharmacists, we're definitely doing some of these things in practice, but for us to be more mindful on a day-to-day -day basis of these, we could probably do a better job. And this would uh, can, uh, account for things such as discontinuing inappropriate maintenance fluids, changing IV medications to PO, concentrating our drips, and then lastly, uh, before giving additional fluids sparingly, just doing a fluid responsive test to assess if they'll actually have that benefit. So once we've uh, implemented our restrictive uh, approach, let's move into a deresuscitative approach as well, selecting uh, diuretic starting doses. This is important to assess if patients have been on this at home and they're tolerant to diuretics. We can consider doing two and a half times their, their home dose as a starting dose of furosemide. And then if they're naive, we want to take into account the renal function as if uh, renal function decreases, patients tend to be more uh, resistant to our initial dosing of diuretics. So how do we actually then titrate our therapy? We want to have uh, set some set times that we're going to assess urine output. So on a Q6 hour basis, I think would be realistic here. This gives us multiple times to intervene during morning rounds or afternoon rounds. And breaking down that uh, daily goal then into, uh, I guess, into quarters, we'd be assessing a, a urine output of around 250 to 500 mils for net negative goal of one to two liters. For successful, we could go ahead and schedule our dose on a Q8 to Q12 hour basis. For not successful, want to go ahead and just essentially double our dose till we're reaching closer to a max dose of furosemide. And again, if we're successful, go ahead and schedule that dose. Uh, but as we progress on and we're not achieving our urine output goal, we can consider things such as multimodal agents with sequential nephron blockade, including thiazides with metolazone or chlorothiazide. If a patient's truly aneuric and not having any urine output, likely a good time to consult nephrology as renal replacement therapies might be indicated as opposed to therapies or medication therapies. Knowing when to exit this algorithm, definitely an area that we need additional research or uh, it's really gonna be individualized to your patient. So once we get closer to that neutral, the negative fluid balance, we need to be mindful that these patients might not require uh, diuretics as they go to the floor and likely should not be, be prescribed new diuretics for discharge. So for monitoring, these drugs can cause adverse effects. For In summary, a lot of these things we, of course, can consider holding diuretics or reducing the dose. If a urine output's too high, we can, of course, approach that. We want to be mindful of where we're at on our tightrope and make sure we're providing adequate perfusion. And looking here at metabolic derangements, if sodium's high, we consider adding something like metolazone or a thiazide. If potassium's low, uh, we consider supplementation or adding a spironolactone to help us with that. And then additionally, for metabolic alkalosis, diuretics with loop therapy can cause an con increased concentration of bicarbonate. Uh, so we, these patients can be prone to that. Although there's not a ton of evidence to support the usage of alzidazolamide, it could be something to be considered for these patients to help with that. And then lastly, for a MAP less than 65, again, maintaining perfusion, of course, would be important as we don't want to overcorrect. We can assess fluid responsiveness before giving additional fluids, or we can initiate a vasopressor uh, to provide that needed unorgan perfusion. That brings us to a patient case where we'll apply these concepts. 
Patient MO is a 68-year-old female admitted for septic shock, presumed from a urinary source. Possible day one here, we can see she was adequately resuscitated. She started on broad-spectrum antibiotics and norepinephrine drip. On day two, she was hemodynamically stable, off-pressors. She's six liters positive since admission and some physical evidence or radiographic evidence of fluid overload. She has a reduced urine output and her creatinine clearance is 45. I also have some culture results back. Looking at her current medications, she continues on a maintenance fluids with lactated ringers. She is receiving some antibiotics. She's on pantoprazole IV and then some home medications that were resumed for her uh, on admission. The treatment team would like to start a general diet today and aim for an I and O goal of negative one to negative two liters. What is your de-resuscitated treatment plan for patient MO? For this question, on the, on the screen, you'll see that you'll be able to select or click what option you want. So you can simply just drop a pin over that intervention that you'd like to do. And there's multiple correct answers on this. All right, so as the answers come in, I think I see a lot of good answers here. This is really just to showcase, I think, how much pharmacists can do on a day-to-day -day basis for our patients. So there's a lot of restrictive type things we could do for looking at that bundle. We can convert that IV pantoprazole to oral. We can de-escalate antibiotics as that patient likely doesn't need that vancomycin based off those culture results would decrease an additional 250 to 500 mils of fluid. Uh, maintenance fluids aren't indicated as this patient's diet's progressing. So definitely a huge intervention there. And I would agree with, uh, I think it would be reasonable to start off furosemide bolus at 60 milligrams for this patient. So at this time, I don't think we need to consider multimodal agents with the thiazide. I don't think we, should, we need additional fluid and consideration for a Lasix strip or CRRT would be later on in, in the course. So we would, of course, then uh, put into practice our restrictive uh, bundle and then I think give that initial dose of, of diuresis or uh, with furosemide for looking for that diuresis and setting our clear goal would be, would be key. So now that we've uh, reviewed everything again, noting that I think there's still a lot of room for improvement in our, in our additional studies of interest. So these are just a few that I want to put on your radar. Uh, of some of which are we're still awaiting those final results or additional ones that are still recruiting patients. So we're on the horizon on this uh, important topic. So in summary, I hope that uh, you have gained some appreciation that our fluids definitely are medication therapies that we need to treat like any other drug. Fluid overload has been associated with negative outcomes in critically ill patients. Our studies have demonstrated the feasibility of restricting uh, fluids or providing de-resuscitative approaches, although we haven't seen that clear benefit in clinical outcomes. I think a protocol is a great starting point for de-resuscitation. It's definitely important to keep in mind that every patient is a unique individual and we need to tailor that therapy appropriately to meet their, their goals. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.